Well, good morning. So I want to just spend a minute here addressing um, the, just the changing culture as it correlates to all of the changes related to COVID-19 and the mandates in our state. You know, a week and a half ago, the governor announced that all the mandates would leave on the 2nd of June. Um, so we have done our best throughout this mandate or throughout this pandemic to observe the different mandates that we have um, that are going to be going away. And obviously that's brought for many of us just a number of different tensions and struggles. Uh, nevertheless, in the, the spirit of being consistent, which we've tried to be, um, th- there's some changes that means for us here. So on Sunday, June 6th, uh, all of our uh, mandates in terms of wearing masks and social distancing, putting chairs in between us, all of those things are going to go away here in a couple weeks here in the church, all right? Uh, also apply to our classrooms, different gatherings of the church, those type of things that will, that will all change. Now, obviously, people are still free to continue to wear their face coverings if they would like, and you can still create that distance just by choosing someone who's already sat down and creating some seats between them and you if you would like to do that. Now, we're aware also that the CDC has changed their guidelines and things for people who are vaccinated and not vaccinated. And we've already seen that, obviously, playing out before our eyes here in our church family and certainly in society as well. And so we just roll with those things even as they go. But, but what, not, what, what shouldn't change okay, and what we're not going to change is just our mandate to continue to love and honor one another. I mean, society's changing, and there's no reason to think that on June 2nd any that the changes are going to stop, right? But throughout this, we've said let's honor one another, let's love one another, let's give preference to one another, even at times when it creates some personal sacrifice. And so um, as we have throughout this encouraged even those who are more conservative in all of this to respect and honor those who are less conservative, we're going to watch that change a little bit, right? And so I'm just going to encourage those of you who are less conservative now to encourage and honor those who continue to be conservative. Again, it's all about the kingdom, right? We can't lose sight about it all being about the kingdom. I mean, there are all kinds of viewpoints about what this should look like, um, but the scriptural viewpoint is really pretty clear. Let's love one another, let's respect one another, let's honor one another, even as the tensions and everything around us continue to change. And this is why, right? This is the point. Each life that God has created is valuable and made in the image of God. And that's what ought to be reflected in our attitudes and in our actions towards one another, even when we disagree with other people. And and you've heard me say this before, and I want to say it again. Let's not sacrifice any opportunities to communicate that value to people and to communicate God himself to people for any kind of a political agenda or a personal agenda or a social agenda, right? There's a higher value in all this. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
Let's take and stay on the high road as best as possible, even though certainly everybody in here has been frustrated over the last 15 months. Let's keep, keep our eye on what's really important. Okay? Now, regarding our Family Matter series and our message today, today we're going to talk about marriage as it was meant to be. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, but before we get there, I thought you might enjoy hearing um, about marriage from, through the eyes of some children, okay? So, when asked why people fall in love, okay, nine-year-old May said this. She said, no one is sure why it happens, but I heard it has something to do with the way you smell. Okay? That's why perfume and deodorant are so popular, she said. Nine-year-old Bart, when asked what falling in love is like, said this. He said, it's like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. (laughs) Alan is a 10-year-old, and he said this. He said, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. Terry is a little boy, age seven. He says, love will find you even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. <laughs> this is another young boy when he, he was asked what, uh, what good looks, what role that plays in finding a mate. He says, well, it isn't just always how you look. I mean, look at me. I'm handsome like anything, and I haven't gotten anybody to marry me yet. <laughs> and then Lori, age eight, asked what her mom and dad have in common. She said quickly, well, both don't want no more kids, that's for sure. (laughs) And then Gavin, age eight, gave this insight about why couples often hold hands. He said they hold hands because they want to make sure their rings don't fall off because they paid good money for those rings. (laughs) So if you're married, how do you make sure those rings don't fall off? Right Today we're going to look at marriage as it was meant to be. And what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is like the very first institution, if you would, that God created. It was his idea in the first place. And because marriage matters to God, we have to do marriage his way. It's a theme throughout this morning. Because marriage matters to God, we have got to do marriage his way. Now, tactically, like instead of preaching some kind of a self-help sermon if you would, about how to fix your mess or what some would like to hear about how do I fix my mate, okay? Um, Let's look at how God designed this marriage relationship to be in the beginning, in its beauty. And let's, let's measure our expectations and our actions against how God purposed it to be and how he planned it to be. Now, we're trying to cover really some just different situations in this Family Matters series. So today we're talking about marriage. Next week we're going to preach, I think for the first time, me, um, deal with the issue. We're going to talk about how to be single and satisfied. So we'll bring that up next week. But today we're talking about marriage. So if you haven't already, turn to Genesis chapter 2. First book in the Bible, Genesis is. So it won't surprise you that chapter 2 is actually on page 2 of those Bibles in front of you in the chairs. Now... Genesis chapter 1 gives us kind of this complete overview of the creation, the narration of how it happened day by day. And Genesis chapter 2 puts a spotlight on the details concerning the creation of man. 
and the creation of woman and also the initiation of marriage. In Genesis chapter 1, the scriptures portray God as powerful. And so when God's name is used in Genesis chapter 1, the name Elohim is used, the powerful God. In chapter 2, when God's name is used, Yahweh is the name of God that's used. That is his personal, his covenant-keeping name. So in Genesis chapter 2, begin with me in verse 18. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and Eve... Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Okay? Because marriage matters to God, we have got to do marriage His way. And as we unpack this passage, we see just in the beginning here that there was a problem in paradise. Okay? Now, those two things don't seem to... I mean, if it's paradise, why is there a problem? Okay? You don't quite understand that in some ways, and yet when you look at verse 18, God Himself says... It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, it's interesting because six times in Genesis chapter 1, after the first six days of creation, each time when God looked over what he had done, he said the words, it is good. And in verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1, after everything was done, he said, behold, it is very good. And yet, in this expanded account of day six, here in Genesis chapter two, as things are unfolding, it says there in verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, observe, this is God's conclusion, not Adam's conclusion. Adam hasn't figured this out yet. Okay, God is the one who saw the need and created the solution. And I want us to understand this from the start because... When you listen and put your ear to society, you'll hear a lot of different things about marriage. Okay? But marriage is a part of God's plan. Okay? It was not invented by society. Maybe you've heard that. I've heard that before. Okay? It certainly was not formed by culture, just a cultural thing. Here it is in the beginning, and it certainly was not created by the courts. And yet those three things are played regularly outside of these walls, as a way to dumb down and create less value in what God created in marriage. But God created it. It was his idea. Now, the word helper that we read in this passage, it can also mean like a complement or a completer, if you would. So we see that God is he, he's proactively providing this partner for Adam. 
Now, having said that, when God said it's not good that man should be alone, I'll make a helpmate suitable for him, you think that the next thing would, would be the words, so God created Eve. But it's not. Instead, he delays his action until Adam figures this out himself. And so Adam names all the animals, and he's like, okay, two of them and two of them and one of me. <laughs> There's a problem here. And in verse 20, he finally figures it out. And, and I just want us to, apart from the message and yet even part of the message, understand that oftentimes um, God can make us wait so that we will appreciate what it is that he wants to give us. Okay? And a reminder to us that oftentimes while we are waiting, God is up to something wonderful even though we might be completely frustrated. I don't think Adam was completely frustrated, but he did have this aha moment. So in verses 19 and 20, Adam is told to uh, give names to all the animals that, that God created. And maybe this was God's way of putting him through some premarital preparation. Maybe this was his premarital counseling here, because in verse 20 it says, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Adam's aha moment right? Um, wait a minute, there's a problem here. Um, and we don't know if he was lonely, but certainly he discovers for himself in verse 20 what God already knew in verse 18, okay? That he's living in paradise and everything, theoretically, his heart could want. I mean, there are lots of pet animals, you know, a, a good job, a, a sinless relationship with God, and yet perhaps he felt alone, but he was alone. There wasn't one like him, and so next in our passage, we see that God, God has a provision for marriage. Look down at verse 21. Adam um, was alone, God said, and there needed to be a completion. And so beginning in verse 21, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Again, understand, God is the one who takes the initiative. Okay? This time, giving Adam some divine anesthesia or some, something so that he can surgically remove a rib and then uses this rib to make the woman. The word for, the word for made is, is to build okay? or to construct. And so get the idea of this, this God, the sculptor. He had formed Adam, then he made Eve. Now maybe you've heard it put like this in a wedding before. If not, um, it'll be helpful to you. If, if so, then it'll be a good reminder. Um, someone wrote long ago that, that Eve was taken not from Adam's head, that she should rule over him, and not from his feet, that she should be trampled on by him, but she was taken from his side that she might be his equal, from under his arm, that she might be protected by him near his heart, that he might cherish her and love her. Eve was fashioned from Adam, listen, not to be identical, but to be complementary. That was God's plan all along. Paul picks up this uh, on this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, when he says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife, Paul says, loves himself. Well, back in verse 22 of Genesis, it tells us that God brought her 
to Adam. So, so God is like the ultimate matchmaker, right? The first one, the best one, he presented Eve to Adam. And, you know, as a pastor for 30 plus years, I have watched as, as dads, right, have walked daughters down the aisle. Now, some of them have been nervous. Um, some of them have been emotional. Um, some of them have been eager <laughs> to pass them off. We've seen all of that, right, over the years. And yet here, like, God is walking Eve down the aisle to her husband, and he gives um, Adam from his own flesh something that's going to meet the need of his hungry heart. He might not even know he's hungry for it yet, but God knew what he needed. And we see God, I mean, God planned the human heart for love and for relationship, companionship in these ways. And in the original Hebrew... Um, we don't get it in the English from Adam's response. It says in the English, this is now. Adam says, this is now. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. If we could get the capture, the, the original language, it would be more like, this is it. Okay? Or at last. Or, or like, all right. Some, some people think that maybe loosely translated, what Adam said was, whoa, man. Or, or woman, that's how we get woman, right? From whoa, man, something like that. But that, that captures more of it than the English does for us. He was thrilled. Someone for me in that way. And Adam knows finally that he is not alone, that isolation gives way to relationship um, and partnership and completion. And I think we should just pay attention because this is God's original intention for marriage that somehow, somewhere has gotten lost oftentimes in our society. Now, verse 23 again says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. An expression of delight by Adam, that he's found one who corresponds to him. All these animals, yeah, there were two of them, but there was only one of me, and now, now there's two of me, kind of a thing. The word bone means of the same substance. The word flesh refers to his body. And we, we wouldn't understand it and recognize it as such. This is like actually the, the world's first love song that Adam gives here when he sees his wife. I mean, isn't it a beautiful thing when you have a husband and wife that are characterized by, by complimenting one another, by speaking well of one another, by showing words of appreciation for each other? And isn't it just... Um, unnerving and frustrating to be around a husband and wife that just are so critical of each other. It's not God's plan. Now, we see how Adam and Eve are made in the image of God. It's the same and yet different all at the same time. We can be one even though we're not the same. We can have equal value even though we have different roles. We'll talk about this more actually next week in our message, but First today, we saw that there's this problem of isolation, right? I mean, it was just him, and God completed him. And then we saw that that, 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 um, that that completion brings beauty. But it was all happening in a sinless world. So we've got to disconnect right away, right? But before we disconnect and say, ah, but our world's not like that, let's look at one final picture. And in this, we see just a portrait of communion. This is really important here in verses 24 especially, but 24 and 25. So because marriage matters to God, we have got to do marriage God's way. 
And the final verses here in Genesis chapter 2 give us just this, this beautiful picture of marriage. In verse 24, it says, That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And verse 25 says, And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. By the way, this passage, this verse 24, is also quoted by Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 19. And by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. It's, these, are, these are not um, specific principles only related to Genesis. These are God's principles for all time that are to be observed here. Okay? Now you might again have heard it in a wedding. I usually don't get a chance to expand on it. So I'm going to do that just a little bit this morning. So the first two sections we looked at today really give us the foundational thoughts for our thinking about marriage. But in the so what, or what does that look like, or the application piece, this is the part, verse 24, that gives us some application pieces for our lives, some elements to look at. And we begin at the first one, and that is leaving. It says, so this is why a man leaves his father and his mother. That word for leaves in the original language means to, to cut off, <clears throat> means to separate. It means to leave behind. Okay? Now, I, I can make a strong case biblically for God, how God tells us that we ought never neglect our parents. We ought to still love them and take care of them and serve them. And so that's not what is being talked about here. What's being talked about here is a shift in our allegiance so that our primary um, priority is given to this new relationship that has been created called marriage. I mean, literally, I think it means like the, the emotional umbilical cord needs to be cut in that way because your loyalty as a person now belongs to your spouse primarily and above all. Your marriage created um, a new family, and that family has to be your highest priority. That's what is being said here in verse 24. Okay? And listen, if you miss this, and you, like me, have probably seen a lot of people who have missed this, like they've not left their father and mother, they've not left their friends, they've not left, in some cases in our world, their children in such a way that this marriage could have the priority and therefore the best chance to succeed. If you've watched that happen, as I have, you know that that marriage is handicapped from the beginning. And sometimes it's not surprising when we don't experience God's best because we don't do things God's way. And so we start out with a commitment to do things God's way so that we can live and, and receive God's best. And the first piece of that in Genesis 2 we find is leaving. Okay? Now the second piece, just because I wanted them to match, we're going to call cleaving. If you have an older version, it would say, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. Okay? The, the, the NIV talks about being united to his wife. Okay? Whichever way, it doesn't matter. You're leaving the priority of other relationships and now you are, you are clinging to, cleaving to, um, joining that husband or wife as the primary relationship in your life. Okay, that, that word in the original language, it means to, to melt two things together in such a way that, that there's this permanent bond between them. Joining two things so tightly 
that they cannot be separated without hurting both things. Okay? Ever try to glue something and then pull it apart? And it rips off a piece of part of one or a piece of the other or sometimes both? Ever watch a husband and wife pulled apart? How it tears apart a life and a family. God says, leave your father and mother. Be united to your wife. Okay? It's covenant language. The word here, it's like being welded or cemented together. God has joined something together that there's no intention of it ever being separated. And then third, the final element he mentions here in Genesis chapter 2 is weaving. Okay? That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So to become one flesh, I think it's a lifetime process. I mean, there's a physical piece to that, but there's also a life piece to that. And it, and it shouldn't surprise us then if, that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, this becoming one flesh, this joining of these two lives together, Paul refers to as a great mystery. Okay? Some of us are slow learners, and it's still mysterious to us. <laughs> We're trying to figure it all out, right? How, how me and you becomes we. How in God's economy of mathematics, one plus one still just equals one. Listen, marriage, is, it's not a contract. Not something you, you sign and you get out of or you walk away from. It, it's an unconditional and an exclusive covenant between a man and a wife that's meant to be for a lifetime. Someone said marriage is when a, a, a man and a woman become one. The trouble comes when they try to decide which one they're going to become. <laughs> you have this thought, I'm going to change them. That, that's a problem, all right? I always picture it like a continuum. Like on one end of the continuum is, is oneness, like unity, as, as one as it gets. And on the other end is isolation. And you think about your marriage and wh which way is it moving toward? Toward oneness or toward isolation? God's plan is that you would become one that you would live more as soulmates than you would as roommates of convenience. Leaving, cleaving, weaving, describe what marriages are to look like. God's objective for marriage is this loving relationship of oneness. Jesus then put it this way in Mark chapter 10, verse 9. He said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage matters to God. Therefore, it needs to matter to you and I as well. See your spouse, if you're married, as, as not just a companion, but as someone who completes you and one that you are to live in communion with. Make sure you've done the leaving part. Make sure that you're cleaving to each other. Make sure you're allowing the Holy Spirit to do His work of weaving your lives into one and do this so that you won't end up grieving God by breaking your vows. Because marriage matters to God, we have got to do marriage His way. So live out your covenant 
vows. I don't know all of your particular situations. There are many I don't. There are some that I do, and, um, and I, I would just say right now, like at any given point in life, there's one person that I have control over, and that's questionable at times. <laughs> but the choices that I make, and so you as a marriage partner, you determine right now that no matter what your spouse has done or hasn't done, no matter what they will do or they choose not to do, what are you going to do to live out your part as God's follower in this covenant marriage that you find yourself in? Okay. Young boy was asked what he learned in Sunday school one day, and the story was of Jesus turning the water to wine, his first miracle at, at the wedding in Cana. And he thought for a minute, and then he thought, well, he said, I guess, like, if, I guess if you're going to have a wedding, just make sure Jesus shows up. <laughs> That's not bad advice, you know. Um, it takes three to make a marriage work. A husband and a wife and the God who brought them together. Your marriage is not going to last long if it doesn't have outside help from God. Paul Tripp says this. He says, if God isn't at the center of your longings, your longings will never be satisfied. And so if we as married people are spending our lives frustrated, and if we're longing for something more than what we're finding, let's first start by checking our longings. And it doesn't mean that they're always wrong. It doesn't mean they're always off base with what God would want. Some, some of us are, are living with people who don't long for God like we do, who don't long for marriage like we do. And all we can do is our part. Adam and Eve, like they didn't start out with problems. They, they, their problems came when they moved away from God and sin ensued. Regarding us and God in this three-person relationship, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 4.12, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Let's invite God to be at the center of our marriages. And I think one of the surest predictors of how well a couple's going to do is how vigilant they are at keeping God at the center of their marriage relationship, inviting him into that spot. So God has made the arrangements right? And if, if we and our spouses will follow his plans, um, we just might experience marriage as it was meant to be by God's design. When we stray from that, we certainly will not. And, and so just the simple question becomes, will you follow his plans? Do you trust him enough to choose that you're going to commit to living God's way in relationship with someone who may or may not make that same choice themselves, that, that I'm going to love God first, then I'm going to love my spouse, and I'm going to learn to love my spouse by looking at how God loves me. That's a tall order. Can we pray for you in this process? Can we pray with you, maybe even with you and your spouse? Can we talk with you through some of your struggles? Can we hook you up with a biblical counselor that can walk you through a path to a different relationship than maybe the one you're on right now. Help you sort through some of the struggles that you're going through. Um, reach out to God this morning. He wants your marriage to be a beautiful thing.
just as he wants your life to be a beautiful thing, just as he paid the price for both of those things to be true. But he won't force it on you, and he won't force it on your spouse. It's all about the choices that you make and that I make. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. I'd invite you to speak with me, one of our staff, one of our leaders. Send in one of the connection cards. Um, fill out one of those sheets about how we can pray for you. It's in the back of the chairs. Connect with us this week if you'd like. We want to see our marriages thrive, and sometimes we just need some help with it. God's willing to help, and we are too. Let's pray together. Father, whether we are in this room or, or watching through some kind of a screen, um, you're with us, and you've joined us on this journey, not just the journey of life, Lord, but also this journey of marriage for many. And, Lord, it's, it's two broken people trying to make something whole, and yet that is your beautiful work. And we know you can do that, and we know that you want to do that. May we cooperate with your Holy Spirit for that to be true. Lord, may our relationship with you be right and our love for our spouse flow out of that relationship. That's our greatest prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.